Good evening. This is Jeff Stevens. I'm coming to you tonight after just having preached at the first uh, part of a three-part series at the Revival at Deep Creek Baptist Church in Pinehurst, North Carolina. So the first episode is entitled In the Beginning. And uh, join me again tomorrow night where we will do In the Middle and again on Wednesday for In the End. So um, it's a long episode, but uh, I hope you enjoy. Different sermon than I prepared. So I hope you left the right ones up here. <laughs> well, welcome again to Deep Creek. Uh, thanks for coming out. Uh, I, I'll be honest with you, I've never been to a revival before in my life. Never once have I been to a revival. I don't, I don't even know what a revival is. I grew up in the north where the revival started here in the continental United States. They started up there. The Great Awakening started up there, right? Jonathan Edwards, one of the, you know, the great revivalists. If you think about this, in the 1730s, Jonathan Edwards was doing revivals. And within six months, he's got like five or six people getting saved. Jonathan Edwards. I mean, he's developed theology that has lasted, you know, 300 some odd years here in North America, and he'd have five or six people get saved. But the fruits of his labor, the Holy Spirit would work through him and through those people who are saved. And at the, about the six-month mark, he finds that the town that he's living in up in Northampton, Massachusetts, produces five to 600 com- converts in a town of 1,100 people. And that spreads all through the Northeast. Now, things may have changed in New England since the 1700s. But for its time, Christ's work was being done through these revivals. Then, of course, we have the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s, the Businessmen's Revival of the late 1800s, the Civil War Revival, and then the Urban Revivals in the 1870s, the 1880s. Of course, we have revivals go out through the 20th century, revivals done by all kinds of the famous names, to, you know, right up through Billy Graham, right? But uh, for someone who didn't know what a revival was, I kind of had to look it up. Why are we going to get together for three days in a row? You know, the answer was simple. It's in the word revive. And I was asked today by a lady, uh, what is a revival? She grew up in the church. She said, what's a revival? What does that even mean? And oddly enough, she was teaching advanced cardiac life support at work today. And I said, well, I can tell you what a revival is. What do you teach in your students today? What do you teach them? Well, how to get somebody whose heart has a real big problem to start working right again. I said, that's where revival comes. It's really that simple. So we come together and we re-educate ourselves and we reinvigorate ourselves. We put our hands on each other and we get a revival going so that people's hearts are back in line with what the Holy Spirit would have for their life. And they get out there and they do the work that we were set here to do. So that's what we're going to do over the next three days, hopefully. So my prayer for this revival is that for each of you and whoever else should come, whether it be a visitor or a longtime member of this church, even though we're not the newest, but very new, that this would be a revival for your heart and for your spirit, for your soul, and that it would produce fruit in this community. Excuse me. So I'll be honest with you, Jerry, Pastor Jerry, he asked me, I don't know, a few months ago, he said, would you be willing to preach? So I don't call it preaching yet because I'm not a preacher. I call it teaching. He said, would you be willing to preach at the revival? So I would love to. 
Give me the opportunity. Give me a topic. And I am in. I love studying the Word of God, and I love sharing with people what I learn. And then about a month ago, he said, not only are you doing it, but you're doing all three. And I thought, oh, man, I have never done this before. This is going to be challenging. Challenge accepted. Please let God speak to me. And please put things on my heart and in my mind. Allow me to study enough that I can give you something that may help revive you and put something in your heart that you'll take it out to the community. So I figured what better place to start than in the beginning. I've entitled this, this will be a series. This is not going to be three different topics. We're not just going to cover the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Although that is the most relevant thing in the history of humankind, we're going to learn something. Hopefully it's something new for you. I learned some things new for myself in this study. But we're going to study some things. It's going to be a three-part series. I've entitled In the Beginning, In the Middle, and In the End. You can see I really dug in hard for those titles. Very creative, right? So in the beginning, we're going to start right there. We're going to start all the way at the beginning of the Bible, which of course is the beginning of time for us. And I want to make you all understand how important this is for God. In our hearts as humans, the beginning of things is important. We all want to know where we're from. We all want to know who our parents are and who our grandparents are. Rarely do you run across somebody who's been adopted or separated from their family, their blood family, who doesn't try to find out where they're from. Even in my own immediate family, I have siblings I didn't grow up with who, utilizing modern DNA technology, have searched and sought out who they are. Where do they come from? People want to know their lineage. People want to know their heritage. They want to know what tradition they come from. Because it's important. And isn't it funny how it lines up that what is important to God, he's written in your heart and it seems like it is naturally important to us, knowing who your dad is. It's important to us because it's important to God. Even in Genesis, what we see written out in Genesis oftentimes is genealogies. We start the New Testament out with genealogies of Jesus Christ. It's important. He's saying it's okay to know where you're from. It's important to me to know where you're from. And the reason for that, I believe, is he wants us to know we come from him. So this is where we start in the beginning. So to, to put a little bit of science behind it, what does it mean? What does the science behind it look like? So we have three big studies that we have for the beginning of things. So we have cosmogony, which is the study of the entire universe. Cosmogony is where does the universe come from? All the stars and all the planets and the Milky Way and all this stuff, cosmogony, where does that come from? And then we have anthropogeny, not anthropology, which is the study of humankind, but anthropogeny. So where does man come from? Where's this, the study of where humans come from? This is an actual study that we probably disagree with most of the world on, and we'll talk about that a little bit. And then we have theogony. Theogony is not a Christian word, so it technically means just the study of the origin of gods. Little g, plural s. But for us, the, our theogony, which would go along with our theology, our theogony would be like, what is the origin of God? Or who is God? Where does he come from? 
Of course, our God is infinite. He is. We're going to talk about that a little bit as well. But as we talk about the beginning, I want to give you the answer to one of the most important questions in humankind. These are the four most important words you will ever hear, and they are the four most important words in the Bible. Now I just throw it out there and ask if anybody knows maybe what those four most important words are, but I know without a shadow of a doubt, everybody here would get it wrong. They'd get it wrong because as Christians, what we want to do is we want to go back to Christ all the time, and we'd pick a word like, I am the way, or I am the truth, or I am the light. And they would pick something with Jesus, but everybody would pick something different. Because we all have something that speaks to us about the truth of Christ in their life that becomes the most important thing to us dependent on your walk. But I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, those are not the most important words in the Bible. So the four most important words in the Bible, without any shadow, without any doubt, is in the beginning God. In the beginning God is the foundation for it all. You see, without in the beginning God, there is no Jesus Christ. Without in the beginning God, there is no planet Earth. Without in the beginning God, there are no stars, sun, moon. There is no proto-evangelium. There is no plan for our salvation. It is not there without in the beginning God. Those are the four most important words. And we're going to talk a little bit more as we continue to go on about why it is imperative as the church, especially a church who is doing a revival, that we have a little bit of introspection here, that we look at ourselves and say, are we really paying attention to that? Do we really believe in the beginning God? Or do we be, believe in the beginning or in the beginning evolution? Or in the be beginning Big Bang? Or in the beginning, you fill in the blank with whatever public school taught you like they taught me, and filling your head with fairy tales. I'll just throw that right back at them. You think mine's a fairy tale? Really? I got a history book that supports mine. What do you got to support yours? Lies. In the beginning, God. When I started studying for this, I, I kind of follow the Jewish holidays because I love the Jewish culture and I, I, I will follow along to see how it's relevant to what's going on in time. And it was actually Pastor Jerry who reminded me of this. But I had been planning to do this sermon, I don't know, probably about a month on In the Beginning. And if you know what's going on this week, the Jewish high holidays, it's the beginning of the holy days. It's the beginning of the high holidays. So starting this Friday will be Rosh Hashanah, which of course is the Jewish New Year. But what do the Jews practice during the Jewish New Year period? Creation. So that was probably not divine. It was probably an accident. I just thought it was cool that it lined up like that, but I'll take it, right? So there's not a lot of things I do that are amazing and awesome, but I lined that one up totally by accident and I'm taking credit for it. Um, so it's the perfect lesson to line up with God's creation. You know, God, and many of you know this because you sat through the creation story as a kid. And you may not have gone on over it a lot in church afterwards because they don't make as 
flashy or as fun for sermons. They're difficult. They're hard to get through. Genesis is a big, long book with a bunch of names that only about three people in the world can actually pronounce properly. But the reality is we need to start getting back to understanding this, that God existed before everything and outside of everything. And that this statement I'm about to say declares his holiness. And because he exists outside the timeline of our existence, we can explain that before creation, God is. And that is really what it comes down to. He, he is. And I know it's hard for us to get our heads around the statement God is because it takes away time for humankind. And it makes it difficult to say, but when did God start? Well, he didn't start. He is. You know, when, but he says he's the Alpha and the Omega. So that gives the picture of the beginning and the end. He says, yeah, but you got to draw, keep drawing that line. He's saying that for us because we're so finite. He's infinite. So when he says the Alpha and the Omega, he's, he's covering both ends of this deal and everything and all planes. But what it does is it puts into perspective our position as mankind and how small our thinking is. On planet Earth here, we're lowly, unworthy creatures. I mean, God made us out of dirt. Imagine that. He made us out of dirt, right? And even though we know the story of creation, we easily lose perspective on that creation story as time goes by. We, 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 we leave it for a number of reasons. And we're going to get into that right now. But when we lose perspective, we develop what typically falls into three categories of lies about our lives, about creation, and about ourselves. And one of those is that we're self-sufficient. That's one of the biggest lies. Nobody's self-sufficient. Nobody is. God sustains us. The sinner, the sinless, the righteous and the unrighteous, he sustains us all. He sustains even those that have gone to be with him and those that are living in hell on earth here. He sustains us. He produces food for us, water for us to drink, air for us to breathe. He sustains us every single day. We are not self-sufficient beings, but we've forgotten that. We forgot when we left the Garden of Eden who made it all. You see... Back in the garden, I imagine this picture of Adam being able to see that God created it all and he got it. Now, granted, there's a whole other story involved there where Adam forgot for a moment. But he sustains us unless we forget. We also, the second one is, is that we're autonomous. That we can develop things on our own outside of God and make them work for our own good without him. And that is a huge lie, that we are autonomous beings, that we live here all on our own, that somehow either through primordial soup or some fungus that slammed into the planet on an asteroid from who knows where, that we grew up through an evolutionary process and that we somehow exist with one another, with our autonomy, and we're able to be the wonderful creators that we are. So even if you know a little bit about mankind, we live in this strange dichotomy because built in the image of God, we like being wonderful creators and building things. I mean, look at the technology over the last number of years that mankind has been able to develop with his mind. The skyscrapers, the internet, 
vehicles, the electric engines. I mean, all these things that we have, the ability to communicate somebody 15,000 miles away in the snap of, you know, of fingers. It's amazing. We're building this image. We're able to create. Um, but the other thing is, is this idea of survival of the fittest. See, we're awful human beings all in the same sentence where we'll clod each other to keep each other down in the barrel. Our naturalistic tendencies aren't to lift each other up. Our naturalistic tendencies are to drag each other down. We're awful to one another. We set each other aside. We don't care for one another. This is where God steps into our lives. The last one, the last common lie is everything is relative, or that there's no absolute truth. Everything is relative and there's no absolute truth. This, this is the one that probably pertains to this message the most, because as we look at creation and the creation story and how it pertains to us, how it is extremely relevant to our salvation story, is we see that we've set aside absolute truth and we start to take in the what ifs. Well, that can't be 100% true. I'll give you a for instance, believers. Have you ever been asked, do you really think God made it all in just six days? I'll tell you, the answer across the contemporary Christian church right now, I've not done a survey, so don't quote me on this, but I will bet you 90% of people sitting in churches today would go, hmm, well, I don't know if it was really six days. Well, there's some importance in that. You see, Moses wrote that. David believed it. Jesus believed it. Jesus actually told us that if we don't believe what Moses wrote, then we don't believe him. Jesus was clear. He wasn't joking. He said to the Jews, you forgot what Moses wrote. You've become autonomous. You're doing it your own way with the law. You've become self-sufficient. You can do all these legal things all on your own to get to heaven without me. See, it's all relative. As long as you get the law part done, then you make it to heaven and you've forgotten who the Messiah is supposed to be. And then they killed him. They broke all three of these. That was just 2,000 years ago. So not only are the three of these the basis for the rejection of God from any angle, it doesn't matter what you're looking at, whether it's other religions or atheism. Um, there are three philosophical uh, aspects of sin. All three of them together were all committed in the Garden of Eden, if you think about it. So their rejection of who God was and their autonomy when the serpent is talking to them is they were self-sufficient. Remember when he asked them, is that really what God told you? Are you sure you can't know this? I guess I can. I guess I'm self-sufficient. I could, I could know. And then, you know, he makes them believe that in themselves they'll be like God. This is their autonomy. And then he makes it relative. He makes truth relative by basically making them guess whether or not they could be like God and whether or not they will truly die. And through the three of those, we have the fall of humankind. This is the beginning. This is in the beginning. And this is why it's important. 
right? Why is the creation story important? Why is the Christian imperative to believe that God created the heavens and the earth and all mankind and all that dwells within his sovereignty? Why is this important? Why can we not set aside the explanation of our origins? Why can't we set aside the explanation of our fall and our plan for salvation? It's not just some ancient Mesopotamian mythological story told over campfires to buy the time before people had Netflix and Hulu and all that junk. It wasn't just a bunch of stories passed down. Why is it important to us as Christians? Turn with me to Psalm 8, if you will. I'll give you a second to go there. And you'll notice, as you get to Psalm 8, I gave you the first four words in the Bible, no matter what version you're reading out of. Why would you have me turning all the way to the Psalms to talk about the beginning? Well, this particular psalm is going to talk about the beginning, and it's going to talk about it in a very specific way that I think we need to dig in on a little bit, and this will be kind of the crux of our message for tonight. Now, I'm going to read out of the ESV, so I apologize if mine's a little bit different than the one that you have in your pulpit, but I guarantee you that in both versions, Psalm 8 is going to be quite parallel to one another. So Psalm 8, starting in verse 1. We have, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If that is not King David singing the creation story all over again, I don't know what is. I mean, this is it. This is him singing, look at what you made majestic. It's not just made special, it's majestic. It's holy. It comes from the majesty, from the king. It comes from his glory not just from a place of creativity. It comes from the top, from the guy on the throne. He made it. Not, look what you had somebody make for us. Look what what developed out of that primordial sludge for us. Look what evolved for me. This is, look what you made for us. From your throne, you made all this stuff for me. Oh, and you gave me dominion over all this. Look how amazing it is. We could easily read through the whole creation story. And then through the fall, we could read through the fall, and we could go through the Proto-Evangelium, right? So Genesis 3, we talk about how God creates the plan for our salvation as he establishes the foundations of the earth. 
just to see what God developed and spoke into existence, all of creation to include the redemptive plan. And it reveals his sovereignty, it truly does. His holiness, his love for creation. Or we can see that entire plan fall out right here in this psalm. And I think that's why this is unique. It shows us that the Bible is consistent, right? So we don't lose something over a number of books. What we do is we continue to build on it. We continue to build on the creation plan, his sovereignty, his majesty, his holiness, and his plan for our salvation by continuing to slide right in the book. Everything we read should build upon, in the beginning, God. And that's what we're going to see here. Let's start in verse 4 of this. I know there's probably some verses we'll skip over, but you people don't probably want to be here for two hours, although I would keep you if you would listen. We'll skip verse 1 through 3, and we'll jump right to verse 4. Mindful. Depending on the version of the Bible that you read, some may say, remember. What is man that you are mindful of him or that you remember him? Interesting. Why does God need to remember man? It doesn't seem right that God would forget man. I mean, he's been pretty intimate in the goings-on of mankind throughout history so far, and all of a sudden... The king of Israel is saying, hey, thanks for not forgetting us. There's more to it. So if you do a little bit of an exegesis of this, which you find out that this word is just not able to come through in English. And this is what I love about the Bible is when you start looking at it from the context of the guys who wrote it, man, does it just make it come alive in a new way that it's just hard to deny how much he loves us in this. So the Hebrew word used here is zakar, Z-A-K-A-R in English. And I'm going to steal a fellow theologian's explanation here, if you'll please allow me to read. His name is David Guzik. He explains the word like this. David was confident that God not only carefully thought about man, but that he had some kind of personal connection and contact with men that God visits him. He thinks about us and acts in our lives. David was confident that God not only carefully thought about man, but that he had some kind of personal connection and contact with men that he visited them. And he thinks about us and acts in our lives. Now, to just read Psalm 8 and read that fourth verse, I think this is one of those that, if you're not really looking, you just breeze over. You don't even go back to it. And, you know, I brought it up earlier. Would God really forget about man? But I don't think most people would do that. I think they would just breeze over it and go, eh, God, remember man, and keep going. Sometimes when we stop and we just take a deep breath, and we start looking into these verses and we find out that God has meticulously placed all these things here, these pearls, right? These pearls for us to find. We find the things like this, like this guy, David Guzik, and he says, look at what he's saying. All through one Hebrew word, you're able to extrapolate this giant message about the intimacy of how God interacts with mankind. You see, if you read this again, just in, in, in English, it says, what is man that you were mindful of him? What is man that you remembered him? 
gosh, it seems so small. But the word zakar brings it into this whole new light where, I mean, you could write a whole sermon series off from this word about how God intimately interacts with his creation right from the beginning where God is walking in the midst of the garden, where he's careful and passionate about the way he's developed things so that the whole ecosystem works together and sustains life for them, where he's given man dominion over it, where man screwed it up. But even though he screwed it up, God had a plan right from the get-go. You see, God didn't have to wait for them to screw it up. He knew they were going to screw it up. He knows you're going to screw it up. He knows my wife is going to screw it up for us. No, I screwed it up too. But you see, God had a plan right from the beginning so that he knew that when we fall, there would be a safety net for us. Better than a safety net, right? Something to lift us back up into his glory. And that's the important part of this. So this leads us to that salvation plan. So only God could have ordained something like this before creation. This is something I contend with greatly with people in the church who believe that there can be some consistency with evolution and the church, evolution and Christianity. He has to have ordained this before creation because death does not enter into creation until the fall. That's a really, really important thing to understand. If everything evolved out of a primordial soup and things were dying and eating each other and killing each other and the whatever they were, cave people, were killing animals and eating them, then the whole story that we know about creation in the fall, it's, it's irrelevant. All of Genesis just goes away. It's irrelevant. Although Jesus would contend with that. But it's important to understand that when sin enters humanity, that's it. That's when things start dying. There was no death until that point. So how did things die before that? It has to be ordained before creation because at the time of death, there instantly, miraculously, in that moment, needs to be a way for us to be reciprocated, for us to be brought back into the presence of the Lord. Because remember, they start populating the earth. So people are going to die. They're going to get sick and die. They're going to kill each other and die, which of course we see early in Genesis, right? Cain kills his brother. So we need to have that plan in place right from the get-go or it doesn't happen. You see, he's mindful of us and he knew we wouldn't be able to do it on our own. He wants to be our redeemer. You see, that's the thing. He didn't just set it in place because he could be. He wants to be. So he carefully planned it so that he could not only glorify himself, but show us that his love for us is so great that he meticulously planned our redemption so that we don't ever have to be without him. And I think that's pretty cool. If you take a look at them kind of getting evicted out of the garden. Because although they get evicted out of the garden, you know they're welcome right back into the garden. And people forget this. So you remember the picture of the garden is you got cherubim, you got angels guarding the garden, right? They're sitting there. They don't let any bad stuff in because the garden's perfect. God made it perfect. And they're in there, and of course they commit this sin, 
and they realize they're naked. And, of course, we have this long conversation between God and Adam where Adam says pretty much everything wrong that he could. And God's like, man, seriously, I'm going to give you a little lesson. I'm going to teach you about the redemptive qualities that I've set in place for you. Go forth. Work the earth. And they couldn't even figure it out. But God had already made a plan for them to go right back into the garden. Where do we see that story? We see that story on the cross, right? Because the sinner that was next to Jesus on the cross asks him to remember him. And Jesus says, today you'll see me in paradiso, in the garden. From that time, they left the garden. They could have stepped outside there and got hit by a dinosaur, right? And they would have, if they believed, would have gone right back into the garden, into paradise, with, in the presence of the Father. Amazing that he had that set up right from the get-go. He never wanted us to be separate from him. He never wanted us to have that pain. It's us that chose that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to read another quote. This is a guy, a uh, great guy, great read. His name's Chris Bruno, and he's a Wheaton College uh, theologian. Wheaton's, of course, a pretty good place. Uh, lots of good stuff coming out of there. Um, explain it as this. He says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, this is his quote, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's creative power and his redemptive power cannot be separated. The God who creates is also the God who redeems. And he who does both with the same power for the same reason, and ultimately that is his glory. You see, the two are inseparable. So we sit in church. This is the collective we. And we're easy to get on team Jesus. And we're easy to say, I got the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're easy to say, I've got that redemptive story written in my heart. And we'll remember Bible verses from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and a couple from Paul, from books that I have a hard time remembering what order they're in. But very rarely do we study our own creation story. Very rarely are kids in the church taught that it's the truth. Very rarely are kids taught that Jonah lived in the belly of a fish. Very rarely are we told that the flood happened. Now, I think we can debate how it happened. I think we can debate some parts and pieces because the Bible is unclear about some tiny minutia. But it happened. God destroyed everything. It was bad. Where we start wavering with our kids in the church, with ourselves, at your home group, with your families, when people ask, do you really believe that? Well, gosh, Christian, I think the answer is be yes. Because if you don't believe the creation story, why would you believe the story of the fall? And why would you believe that he created a redemption story for you? Then why even believe Jesus came for you? You really think a six-day creation is miraculous? How about, like that, a new heaven and a new earth? Everything over again. Everything. I don't even know what that's going to look like. We might all be driving Ferraris. It's going to be amazing. We're going to talk about that amazement in a minute. I don't want to get there. I'm getting ready to move on. 
The creation history and the plan for redemption, they just can't be separated. We've established that, right? Which means we also need to be teaching the creation story in church. And for those of you who deal with youth, I encourage you. Learning the creation story and its understanding is part of God's redemption plan, is part of our responsibility to the next generation. John stood up in this church yesterday and made it very important that when we forget who we are as a church, things start raveling out of control. When we allow things to be taught that shouldn't be taught, when we waver on who we are as Christians, when we waver on our convictions, we lose. We lose, and at that point we stop, and the world has changed, and the church has changed, and it's hard to figure out how to get it back. And that's why we do revival. That's what I'm learning. That's why we do revival. We do revival because we need to be reminded of some things and we get that spark back and we start moving forward again and we get some momentum so we can get back out there and start reminding not only ourselves but other people to dig into this amazing book that's got the whole story from the second I was born until the second I die and it has everything to do with what happened on day one and what happens in the last day which we will go over on Wednesday night. Did Jesus say anything about this though? I know people are always curious about that. In today's world, in the contemporary church, they always want to see it in red letters. They always want to see it in red letters. Well, you're Jesus freaks. Jesus didn't say anything about that. How could you believe that? Well, I believe the whole book was written by Jesus. That's just me. I think there's plenty of evidence in the text. But everybody wants to know if it was written in red letters. And there's a whole bunch of social issues. People will look at you and say, well... You know, I think the church could waver on this social issue over here, like who should be married to who, or who should be loving who, or should we agree with, is that murder or is that killing? Because Jesus didn't actually say that word. Well, because Jesus spoke Aramaic, and that word didn't exist. But I'll tell you what Jesus did say something about, and that's the creation story. He said something about Moses, and he said something about how he believes the creation story and how we us, the church, you and I, should be firm in our convictions. Matthew 19, verse 4 and 5, Jesus answers them. Have you not read that he who created them, he's talking about God, from the beginning made them male and female, and he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is talking about creation here. God made them male and female. He did not make them protozoa, soup, chicken noodle, whatever. He made them male and female. Period. That seems to be cleared up. This particular verse I think is interesting because Jesus said to Adam and Eve, we're at the beginning of it all. It was them. Well, did it have to be Adam and Eve? Yep. It sure did. This means there was no Big Bang. I mean, if there was, we know who did it, right? Way before mankind, some weird thing didn't happen, and there was no evolutionary process. Let's hear from Jesus again in Matthew 24. It's another good one. First. 37 to 39. Matthew 24, verse 37 to 39. You may have heard of this guy before. If you've been in church for a couple days, or if you're a skeptic. It says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of man. Did Noah exist? Yep. Was there a flood? Yep. Any questions on that one? Jesus said it. I believe it. Let's hear from Jesus again. John 8. You see a theme here? John 8, 39 to 41. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus is making the case here for his father, God, in the beginning of time. He's making that line, this lineage. He's making the case for it. Um, he makes the case for himself at the beginning of creation as you continue to read on in John 8. And as they question him about his... Uh, time in existence with Abraham, they say your father or your father Abraham rejoiced he would see my day. He saw it, it was you know it was glad and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old. And you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was I am. Now we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, remember this is a really awesome one if you look at it in Aramaic because of all the seven I am's that you get out of the book of John, this is the eighth ones. And the other one are I am, like an imperfect verb, but this I am, if you look at it in Aramaic, is I am the living God. He's really telling them here, this is it. I was at the beginning. That's how I know who Abraham is because I made him. That's what he's telling them. Luke 17, just uh, bear with me for a couple more verses. Uh, I think this is, it goes with supporting our theme here. As we look at Luke 17, in Jesus' words in verse 28, is likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire, sulfur, Rain from heaven destroyed, destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Sodom and Gomorrah. Did it happen? It did. Jesus is telling us it happened. This isn't some sort of archetype. It's not sort of funny story that the Jews told to try to make a point, although it does. They do make good points. What Jesus is saying was, this stuff happened. I was sitting up there watching all this stuff happen. And now I'm making a point to you, utilizing my belief about it happening. And if you believe Jesus is God, as we should in this church, then you'll believe his words. He's telling you it happened. Take that into your Bible study time. Two more verses, then we'll move on. Matthew 12, verse 39. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given 
to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will be the Son of Man. And we'll, I don't need to continue on with that. Um, but again, to go back to that theme, we're understanding here, Christ is being clear. When a child in your group, in your home, or somebody new to the church, or a fellow believer is having a hard time getting their head around some of these things, and they're like, well, hey, man, do you really believe that that guy, Jonah, who wasn't being cool and wasn't following God's orders, actually got swallowed by a fish? You can say, yes. Because I'll tell you what, if you believe Jesus rose from the grave, is it that much harder to think that some guy lived in a fish? I mean, think about the comparison of miracles. I don't know about any of you, but I've never seen anybody rise themselves up out of the grave before. And if you've ever seen anybody that's dead, three days is a long time. And if any of you work in the healthcare field or otherwise have seen the dead, three days is a long time. Nobody comes back in three days. Nobody. So if he can do that, he can sustain somebody in the belly of a fish. Last one, John 5, verse 45. Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you. Anybody know who that guy is? Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Remember these good law-abiding Jews? They've set their hope on Moses. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You know, Jesus came. People like to throw this at Christians all the time. When it comes to the law, I actually did a big study on this probably about eight years ago. Well, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, not one jot, one tilt, not the law and the prophets. You see, he wasn't talking about the Levitical law. He was talking about the law. It's the books the Jews used written by a guy named Moses. He didn't come to get rid of that. What Jesus was saying was, I'm the fulfillment of that. See all that stuff that Moses told you about, about me coming to save your life? I'm right here. I'm right here. And they were like, ah, you're blasphemous. Crucify him. See, the writer of Hebrews in the second chapter references the eighth Psalm in a passage that could be summed up as God being the founder of our salvation. I think that's a, a, a really neat way of saying that. And as the origin of creation, he's the founder <coughs> of our salvation. Martin Luther um, had, a, had an opinion on creation deniers as well. And this kind of made me giggle a little bit because... I think of Martin Luther as quite a revolutionary. If, you don't, if you've never read anything about the Reformation, take an hour of your life and look at pre-Reformationalist. I actually preached on one of them in this church earlier in the year, Jan Hus, the Hussites, right? This guy is burned to death in the Catholic Church for being a pre-Reformationalist -reform uh, who didn't, wasn't hip with almsgiving and stuff like that. Um, when you read these guys, they were pretty radical. A revival for Martin Luther would have gone something like this. Hey, you're all doing it wrong. 
We're going to start over. I love this church. I love all of you. You're doing it wrong. I mean, his words were not, he did not mince words. I mean, he made the Catholic Church pretty upset with him. That was 500 years ago, and they still hate him. Trust me, I grew up in the Catholic Church. Like if you say, Martin Luther, in the back of the Catholic Church, everybody turn around real quick. He had an opinion about these creation deniers. This made me chuckle. I love it. So basically, they've existed on record as far back as we can remember. You know, uh, regular, just kind of recorded history. We're writing stuff down. First century B.C. Uh, he often cited creation account as an example, the clarity of Scripture. And then he accepted the Mosaic authorship of Genesis and that Genesis is the very word of God without qualification. It doesn't need some other sort of book. It doesn't need science. It doesn't need a scientist. It doesn't need some special revelation or special new prophet. He just accepted it without qualifications. It's the word of God. It was his conclusion that the world had not been in existence for more than 6,000 years. We can debate that later, but Martin Luther thought that. But he stated that philosophers or the evolutionary writers starting from the first century up through the 16th, that they would never accept that since they work on the basis of human reason, that they are blind, deaf, senseless, godless, sacrilegious, and dealing with all God's words and works. And I was like, man, can you imagine? So if you're like me and you're a little bit of a nerd and you get on the interwebs and you start digging in on debates, you start looking at a debate of a, say, a a theist and atheist or a Christian and an atheist, uh, you know, some great ones out there. Um, I, I can't imagine Martin Luther's debate. You know, it goes something like this. You know, he says, you go ahead and start. Some guy stands up there and gives his intro. You know, I believe the world is 400,000 billion years old and you were all little fishies and spermatozoites and swam around in a pond. And all of a sudden, one day, poop, a leg popped out. Before you know it, you were building... Ferraris and skyscrapers, and now we all reason with one another. And then he would stand up through this big thing, and he would say, that's cool. Well, you know what I think? I think you're blind, deaf, senseless, godless, sacrilegious in dealing with all of God's words and works. Any questions? <laughs> that would be it. And he'd be right. I was listening to a podcast uh, I was walking the dogs the other day. It says a survey in 2018 said that an overwhelming number of kids brought up in the church without an understanding of the creation story fall away from the church. I don't think that's surprising. I can't remember what the number was, but it was astounding. And those who have been taught that creation is tied to their faith intrinsically and is it a reasonable answer, they, they tend to stay. It's like kids who know the foundation of their faith tend to stick around. I'm not saying they're not going to wander. But when they're asked those tough questions, they're able to give answers for them. So here's one of the problems with our kids. I, I'm the same way. I sent my kids to school. They sat in youth groups at churches where they played basketball and foosball and junk like that. Me thinking that we were doing the right thing, having them in these 
classes with some youth pastor who barely knew how to spell the word Bible, say nothing about crack it and read it, but as long as they were having a good time with their Christian friends, we were a great Christian family, right? And they'd go home and they'd sing a little Bible song on the way home, and I learned something about the Apostle Luke today, and all right, let's go to brunch. The problem is when our kids don't understand the foundation of their faith, when they get into high school or they get into college and somebody says, you really believe the earth is created in six days? How stupid is that? They start questioning, well, if God couldn't create the world in six days, how did he raise himself from the dead in three? Gosh, that seems a little bit important to me. It should be important to you. If that's not a revival enough, I don't know what is. Because that's about as important as it gets. I'm going to close you with this. As I summed up the development of this talk, I was kind of laying in bed this one night, just kind of typing out words as they came to me, trying to figure out how it all comes together. And I ran it by my wife numerous times, mostly because my spelling is My spelling's so bad, even the spell check doesn't get it right. <laughs> She'd have to read it. Look, she's like, I don't even know what that word is. And I came up with this. Bear with me for a moment while I read it because I was unable to memorize it. It says, we worship a God who can live outside of his creation. We worship a God who perfectly designed a plan to fellowship with his creation in the most intimate way by establishing a means to be justified, sanctified, and eventually glorified by showing that unworthy creation that he loved what he created so very much that he would lay down the life of his son for them. A plan so intricate that it literally includes your very name, your very soul, your very life, and a means for you to be redeemed to him for eternity. It's not a general set of plans it has measured every angle twice so that it needed only be cut once. It is so complex and complicated that we will never be able to completely grasp it. Yet so simple that it relies on the most common and intimate of emotions, love. So I'll invite you back up if you want mine. I'll say this, my closing sentence would be, do you recognize that part of the plan? Is the creation story part of the plan for your redemption? Are you pulling it all together? Do you want the revelation of the plan that Jesus has for your life? As we talk about revival over the next couple days, I'm encouraged by, I think it's funny how God sets up worship right in line with how things happen. And these guys are just killing it. It's like start out with uh, something from Psalm 86 about revival. Are you going to allow the Holy Spirit to do that work in you? Over the next three days as we study, are you going to leave here with a piece of this and go home and crack the book and say, gosh, I got I to gotta know more about this? because I got a neighbor that's gonna die in their sin if I don't deliver the message to them. Because I got kids in my life that need to hear this if I don't get the message to them. Because I got grandkids in my life that are gonna die in their sin if I don't get the message to them. 
because we got people in our community that are public servants that are leading us down a hellhole into sin if I don't get the message to them. Because our country's going to dry up into a big, crappy cesspool of horribleness if I don't get the message out to my neighbors. It is our responsibility, church. It's our responsibility. And I love how, as a church, we can keep going back to how we express ourselves through our love for one another. We express ourselves through our actions. But you know what? There's a time for us to express ourselves with our words. And when it comes to what we know and who we know, this is the revival for tonight. We learned a little bit more about the creation story. We learned a little bit more how important it is to your Savior and my Savior, which means it's important to me and it's important to you. So I'll step down, I'll let Benny come up and we'll sing. And if you feel you need to recommit tonight or you need to spend some time in prayer, come up. I'm sure Pastor Jerry will come up as well and pray with you. But I would encourage you tonight, when you look at studying the Word of God, dig deep. There's stuff in there for you to answer the questions, the tough ones, the tough, the hard questions about our theology, about our foundation. And we're going to build on that over the next couple of nights. God bless you.